way through the book of 1 Samuel. We are at the uh, end of that book in 1 Samuel chapter 30. A very low moment in David's life. As he reaches perhaps the bottom of this valley. 1 Samuel chapter 30 verses 1 to 6. Hear then the reading of God's word. It says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag... On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. And they had overcome Ziklag and they burned it with fire. They had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. And they killed no one, but they carried them off and they went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because of all the people who were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and his daughters. And so David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning and we come to you. We come to you in in your word. We long to hear your voice. We long for you to speak your truth into our lives. We pray that we would know and understand and be able to do what David has done. To strengthen ourselves in you. To find strength in our God. I'll come near this morning, Father, and teach us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I think David here has reached a low ebb. David had had his moment of triumph. If you remember that uh, he had returned to Saul for his treachery and for his evil. As Saul has hunted him down and... And mistreated him, that Saul, that David returned to Saul, mercy and kindness. He had the chance to take his life. He had the chance to get revenge. He had the chance to get the upper hand, and he chose not to take it. So he showed this mercy to Saul, but ever since that moment, the chapters that have intervened here, David has been on something of a downhill slide. You might even call it backsliding, that David has stepped away from some of those things. He is at this time, he's fled Judah in fear. He's left Israel, left the borders. He's come under the protection of a foreign king. He went down to the Philistines and he sought protection and safety under the Philistine king, the arch enemies of Israel. And he's there taking refuge. And not only that, but now the Philistines have marched out to war against Israel and against Saul. And David and his men join the ranks. And they become one of the contingents in the Philistine army as they marched on Saul and Israel. But on the way, the Philistine warriors started to have misgivings. And they began to, uh, to say, why are, these, why are these guys with us? We're going to fight Israelites and there's this whole group of them like behind us. And it made them nervous, you know, they questioned their loyalty, is this, is, this, is this a good thing? And so, basically the Philistine king said, David, you know, it's been real, but you got to go. And they dismissed them before they reach Israel. In many ways, this is a mercy, I think, in David's life that he ends up not engaging in this war against his own people. 
but he's dismissed from the Philistines, and that's hard. You are talking about that the other day. It's, you know, one thing if you quit your job. It's another thing if they fire you. You know, you're separated from, even if you were planning on leaving, and they, if they fire you, there's always this thing, if you're dismissed, it always feels yucky. So here is David, hunted by the Israelites, dismissed by the Philistines, sent packing, and so they go home. They go back to their base camp, which is at Ziklag. I like that name. If I have any more boys, I'm going to name them Ziklag. They return to Ziklag, and when they get there, it is utter catastrophe. The place has been burned to the ground. They've left all their stuff there. This is where they left their, their, all their worldly goods, their stuff. Not only that, it's where they left their family, their wives, their children and grandchildren. They've left them all at camp. When they get back, basically they get home. You get home to Chattanooga, and Chattanooga's burned to the ground. All your families, your wives, your children, everyone are gone. And obviously the man, he's, he's with 600 hardened warriors. The guys that we told when they were said, everybody who was bitter in soul flocked to David. Well, here are these guys, you know, everyone who had debt, everyone who was in trouble in Israel is basically a bag of outcasts and vagabonds. And here now they are distraught at the loss of their families and all of their stuff. They have wept until they had no strength, and when they had no strength for weeping, they turned on David. And they said, it's your fault. It's your fault. And so they start having this conversation among themselves about stoning David. Let's, let's stone him. Let's drag him to the center of our burned out city and stone him to death. 600 frenzy warriors, furious with David, distraught in heart, out of their heads with grief, threatening to kill him. You know, it is hard to imagine the depth of David's distress at this moment. Right? I want to take just a moment and let you try to do it, just to imagine the depth of David's distress at this moment. I said, I believe that David was running from Saul for about eight years, and we're at the tail end of that eight years. However long it was, we're at the tail end. He's been running for years. He's been hunted. He is, he is living in a foreign land, hiding from his own people. He's been dismissed by the Philistines. Only it's like out of the frying pan. Have you ever had, you know, you know what else could possibly go wrong? And then you go home, and not only could it go more wrong, it can go horribly wrong. So here David is sitting there. Not only that, I believe David at this very moment is, is closer to death for all is being hunted and all of the attempts that have been made on his life. He is closer to death at this moment at the hands of his own men than he has been up to this point. It's a pretty low point. The greatest blow falls on him and he's lost not only his family, but a tragedy of proportions on the entire people. That are there, And we see in verse 5, I and mean, when we see in verse 1 that they return, the Amalekites have made the raid, and 2 and 3 that they've taken everything. They've taken the, men, the women and the children and all of their stuff and carried them off. In verse 5, it makes a specific point of saying that David's two wives have also been taken captive. So not only are they wanting to stone him, and he's in the middle of this, but he himself has suffered another great loss. That his wives have been taken as well. And when people, when you got taken in this day and age, you were, do you know why they took you? 
There were no good reasons. So they sit there contemplating this. Imagine it in your own life. Try to imagine the depth of loss right here at this moment. The loss, the fear, the temptation to despair, the powerlessness, the length of his struggle, how long this has been going on, the the suffering, the magnitude of this catastrophe personally and, and as far as this group. And if this were you sitting there, if this were your life and you're sitting here at this Tail end, if you were to get alone with the Lord, how would you pray? What would you say? Can you imagine? I mean, what, what, what is it that would be wrung out of your heart at this moment in, in terms of, you know, I was looking at the Psalms because I, as we've seen in the past, and we want to answer that question to some extent, what's going on in David's heart, what's going on in David's mind. The, uh, the great gift that we have is the book, of, of the book of Psalms, which is full of his prayers and his poems that, that expresses his heart. I think it was Calvin that said in the Psalms, we have the anatomy of the human soul. And what he means is that we have expressed in the Psalms every possible human emotion. From, from confusion to despair to depression and unhappiness to, uh, to joy and elation and the celebration of life and worship. And you can find it. You read through and meditate on the Psalms. You will find the entire soul is revealed there. And it will teach you wherever you are in your, your experience, it will teach you to pray. I thought of Psalm 13 as I was looking at it. How would, how would you pray? How would David pray? Psalm 13 is there in your bulletin in the first point. It says, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Do you get it? That's four how longs. You ever feel that way? How long, oh Lord, does this have to go on? How long do I have to be subjected to this? How long do I have to turn around every corner and bump into the next thing? How long? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I'm dying here. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? I'm dying here. David, in this story, as he reaches his low ebb, is literally facing the possibility of being stoned. He's, I'm dying here. How long is this going to go on? Hear me and answer me, O God. Paul David Tripp, we're reading a book on Wednesday nights called... A broken down house is a book about living in a broken world, a fallen world. And the realities of that. And what does it look like to live and to work and to be married and to face things like this? You know, we live in a broken down world. And he says this at one point, it's there in your bulletin. Everyone lives in a broken world. Everyone lives among a flawed people. Everyone is faced with the unpredictable and the unexpected. Everyone. Right? It's the world that we live in. Everyone faces the possibility of a raid on Ziklag at any moment. Right? It's the world we live in. Romans chapter 8, it's there in your bulletin under that quote, verse 20, Paul says the creation was subjected to futility. Another translation says it was subjected to frustration. Translation is the world is fallen and it's broken and it's cursed. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
before we taste of a new heavens and a new earth and a redemption of our bodies and of our situations and everything else. We live in a frustrating world, right? A world subjected to futility, fallen and broken. There's war and there's poverty and there's famine and there's economic frailty and pain and tragedy and loss and sickness and death and betrayal and headaches and deteriorating knees and vacations that go wrong and cars that won't work and we've been subjected to futility. Everyone is faced with the unpredictable and the unexpected. The strongest, most mature, most faithful believer that you could imagine or that you are cannot avoid it. We can't avoid it. It doesn't matter who you are. Right? Noah didn't avoid it. It says he was the most righteous man in his generation. And while he got to get on the, the ark, the world around him was utterly destroyed. Abraham didn't escape it. David obviously didn't escape it. Jesus didn't escape it. James and Peter and those who followed him didn't escape it. They all died unnatural deaths of various kinds. Paul didn't escape it. Paul gives you lists. Stoned, shipwrecked, famine, hunger, prison, beatings. You know, the list goes on. What am I saying? I'm just saying the strongest will be shaken. You know, we live in America, so our shaking is probably not the way it is experienced in many parts of the world, but there's not one of us when we experience shaking, when it's personal and when when it's ours, it is significant. And it is powerful and it is world and life shaping for us. But we will be shaken. All of us will be tried by our circumstances and the circumstances of life. And the question in this moment for David, for you and for me, is the Lord enough? Is the fact that that He is your Lord, your God, your Father, is it enough? Can you say with David, who expressing this confidence, Psalm 23, everybody knows it, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which he's doing right now, and which we all do at some point or other, and ultimately when we face the way of all flesh, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thou art with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They strengthen me. You lead me beside quiet waters. You restore my soul. That's what David has found right here in this passage. It's what captured me as I'm reading through and thinking where to go next. I mean, it captures my my imagination and my heart because this is what all of us want, right? David, in the very end of this, you read, he's at the very lowest ebb of his life. And it says, and David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He restored his soul in the midst of these circumstances, right? And here is the difference in in my mind between a Christian, between a believer and an unbeliever in the world. It's, It's right here in that sentence. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, right? This is the difference because it's not a difference of experience, right? We have the same experiences and go through the same things that the world does. I know Christians with cancer. I know Christians who've lost their jobs. 
I know Christians whose marriages are suffering and falling apart. I know Christians with difficult children. I know Christians going through financial difficulties. I know Christians who have physical suffering and chronic pain. I know Christians who have, I know Christians who have, like we all, how do we differ from the world is not in our experience. We all live in a broken down house. The difference is that the Christian has a living God as a source of encouragement and strength for the journey and hope beyond this life. But this is not all there is. We're told in verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And I think that is a significant, significant statement. There is a personal vital possession of God himself. As this is described, it is his God. Just think about that, to have your, that he is your God, he is my God. There is a vital possession going on here. There's this connection that goes on that goes far beyond intellectual doctrine. You know, and the things that we say that we believe up here, David says, no, he is my God. Right? This is the, the essence of Christianity. This is the vital center of what it is about, that he adopts us as his own children, that he is our God and we are his people, that he is our father and we are his children and he is my father and he is my God in the midst of all these things. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear any evil because you are with me. You are my God and this is your world. He's provided everything that we need in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he tells us that if we will surrender our lives to him by faith, we will become his people and he will be our God. That if we come and surrender ourselves to him by faith, it says that he gives us the right or the authority or the power, the ability to become the very children of God, that He would be our God and we would be His people. And then no matter what it is that we face in this broken down world, we fear no evil because He is with us. McLaren there, number two in your bulletin, Alexander McLaren, a pastor, preacher of the 19th century. He said, so for poverty, loss, the blasting of earthly hopes, the crushing of earthly affections, the extremity of danger, the utmost threatening of death, and here is the sufficient remedy. That one mighty assurance, the Lord is my God. And though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. That was Job, and his world was blasted. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, because he is my God. Right? This is Saul's problem, and we'll hit this one more time as we talk about David and the difference why Saul is rejected and David is accepted as a man after God's own heart. Right? I don't know if you remember the dialogues between Saul and Samuel, and when they were, Saul gets caught in his disobedience and, and his sin, and he has these conversations with Samuel, and several times in those conversations, Saul says things like this, This didn't make your bulletin. It's 1 Samuel 15, 15. He says this, The people spared the best of the sheep and of the auction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Several times through the passage, he says, The Lord your God. 
The people did it. It's their fault, you know, it's, and, and, and they made me do it, and they did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Saul, 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 is he not the Lord your God? Can you not say he is my God? And that's the problem. That's where the disobedience came in. We have to move past attendance and pure doctrine to the experience of God as our God, our Father. Now, even if you are the cause of your own frustration, there may be some of you who would say, um, you know, it's my own sin. I am in having some trouble, and I, am, and I am having some frustration, and I am in the midst of some difficult things. And, you know, it was my own folly that got me here. It was my own sin. I'm, you know, there are things I did that I shouldn't have done, and now I'm suffering the consequences of them. We might doubt whether God would be near to us in those moments. There's some doubt about whether God still loves me. There's some doubt about whether he still walks with me, whether he will still deliver me where I am. And the scripture says again and again and again, absolutely. Right, Jeremiah 3.22 there in your bulletin under the second point where God is speaking to Israel at a faithless point in their lives and he says, Oh, return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. And faithlessness there in some of the translations is translated backsliding, which is a great word that Presbyterians ought to recapture, I think, and get back into usage. Right? He says, he says, return, O faithless or backsliding sons, and I will heal your backsliding. I will heal your faith, faithlessness. Behold, we will come to you. Why? Because you are the Lord our God. Right? Even when we've stumbled, even even when we are the cause of our own problems, even at our lowest ebb, and, and I would argue David is the cause of many of his own problems here. You could argue he's in the middle of a, of a streak of backsliding, that he's fled Israel and left the borders for a foreign nation, and not any foreign nation, but he took up harborage with the arch enemies of Israel. He actually joined their army and was marching on his own people. And there's no mention for about five or six chapters of David seeking the Lord's will. And you'll see if you read on, I don't have time for it this morning, in verse 7 and following, immediately after he strengthens himself in the Lord, he says, get me the priest and the ephod, I've got to talk to God. I've right? got to figure out what God wants me to do. And it's the first time in chapters that David gets serious about communion with God and seeking his will and following him in a way. So there are many ways it may be David's own fault. But there's nowhere else to run, my friends. We run to the one whom we have offended. Just as my children, and I hope that they would run to me, even when it is me that they have offended in some way. That they would come to me. They are my children. They are my sons and my daughters, who I love more than life itself. And God has said, I have loved you and the death of my son more than life itself. Right? Where do we run when we have offended him? And I'll tell you, the life is found in running to him. Deuteronomy 4.29, from there, that is in the place of backsliding, the place of disobedience, if from there you will seek the Lord your God, you will find Him. If you search for Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, if you will search for Him, if you will seek after Him, right? And that's what David does. It's interesting, the language here, and it's actually fairly strong in, in the Hebrew, that David strengthened himself. 
right? He strengthened himself. He, in other words, he did not do nothing. He did not curl up in a ball in the corner and say, poor me. Right? He didn't walk away out into the field and start kicking rocks and, and throwing stones at trees. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't do nothing. He didn't walk away. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He sought after God. He went after him. Right? He, he wrote some of those songs. He prayed some of those songs. How long, O oh Lord, hear me and answer me. Right? And there, there, are, there are dozens of them in there with David pouring out his heart and seeking after, going after God. In his worst moments, whether he was the cause of it or not, in, in the midst of his suffering, he goes after God. He exerted effort. He pressed into him. He reached out for his presence, for his grace, for his assurance, for his help. The throne of grace in his time of need. Now, how did he do it? Again, I would say it doesn't really tell us how he did it. The text doesn't say. But once again, I think the Psalms are instructive. When you want a, a window into David's spiritual life, his communion with God, how would David go about strengthening himself in the Lord? Have you ever read Psalm 1? Out of the gate, some of the Psalms aren't ascribed. Some are ascribed to people other than David. Many are ascribed to David. A few of them tell you actually when in his life and what circumstances they were written. Some of them they're not ascribed at all. Psalm 1 has no ascription inscription. And so Psalm 1, we, we don't know if it's David or not, but um, if nothing else, we, we, most scholars believe David co- wrote many of the psalms and collected and collated them himself. So he's aware of them. In Psalm 1, it says, blessed is the man. Right? He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Right? Blessed is the man who meditates on his word day and night. Blessed is the man. He's like a tree planted by a stream of water. No matter how hot it is outside and how hot the wind blows, it's like a tree that has its own source of life. It's planted by a stream of living water. And David, I believe, as he goes and strengthens himself in the Lord his God, goes to the Word of God. He enters into a communion with a living God in his Word, and he comes and he feeds himself on God's promises, the things that God has said to him. And you know, and he actually, we come to the scripture and the Psalms and read them, and he, he writes them, right? His communion with God and his connection with God in such a way that his, his relationship with God and the depth of his suffering produces the scriptures, the Psalms. He remembers God's choosing love and his goodness toward him, how God called him by his grace and entered into his life and called him to himself and gave him a hope and a future and said you would be king and you know, in the same way that we, too, can remember God's choosing and saving love where He comes to us in our lostness and calls us His children and, and gives us confidence and a hope and a future. He remembers His past faithfulness and deliverances. And He can remember the lion and the bear, Goliath and Saul and all of his hunting and the deliverances and the things that he's experienced with God in the past. Charles Spurgeon said, failing faith means failing strength. Failing faith means failing strength. So if you want to renew your strength, we renew our faith. 
And we renew our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Psalm 1. And we meditate on his word day and night. And we become like a stream that is strong and alive and fruitful. You know, when you're in the midst of the fire, truth can sometimes taste like ashes in your mouth. I mean, there are times when people, if, if the truth is only spoken to you from the outside, you know, you come to somebody who suffered great loss and speak of God's sovereignty. Sometimes that can be a very cruel thing to do, depending on where they are pastorally and how that will hit them when they're standing in the midst of their loss, when they're sitting in the middle of burned out ziklag with dust and ashes on their head and weeping people all around and you come and speak platitudes and What I'm saying is this, that there has to be a vital relationship to God by His Word. In other words, it can't just come to us. The truth can't just hit us from outside because it bounces off. But God has to speak it to our hearts. And it has great power, great power to change us. When the Word is spoken to our hearts by the Spirit, when we seek God in His Word, we want Him to speak into our lives. Attendance doesn't satisfy. Rituals and formalities cannot sustain us. Platitudes don't comfort us. Only a living Christ, right? only a living God who we can turn to, who we know, and who we experience the peace, the joy, the comfort, the power that comes. Right? There is a real strength, and I guess that's what I'm driving at here. There's something real in this. David actually found strength. He was changed. He experienced something. He he was in a miry pit, and God lifted him out of the pit and set his feet upon a rock and put a new song in his mouth. Right? Psalm 40. Right? Something real happened. David found strength and he was changed and because, because he, his inward life was changed in his communion with God, in his relationship with God. He found something that changed him. And if you read the following passage, we see salvation and deliverance because he stepped out of his despair, out of his tears, and he stepped into the Lord and he pressed into his God and he was changed. And he rose up. God worked. Psalm 73 says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Is that true? Is that something real? Is that a nice poetic metaphor? Is that just something to be quoted out there? Or is that an experience of the believer? God is the strength of my heart, of my inner life of my soul, of my thoughts and emotion in this inner world of mine. He's saying something real. He's saying something true, something that we can and should experience. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, it's there under the last point in your bulletin, that he does strengthen us. In Ephesians 6.10, Paul is writing at the end of this whole book of Ephesians about what God has done and this call to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord and what that looks like and, and, the, and the attacks of the assaults of the enemy. And then Paul writes to God's people and he says, Finally, my brothers and my sisters, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. As if that is something real. Right? Be strong in the Lord. Just like David. David strengthened himself in the Lord and it changed his life. Changed that day. Changed his week. 
changed his month, changed his life. Because he found strength, he found something real in God that changed him and changed his life. And Paul says the same thing, be strong in the Lord. Find that strength in God, in the strength of his might. Paul speaks of it in his personal experience, right? There, 2 Corinthians 12, same. He said to me, that is the Lord Jesus, said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ would rest upon me in my life. I don't know, I read something like that, that the power, Paul says, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. I don't think there is a single true Christian heart full of the Spirit of God that can hear a statement like that and not think, yes, me, Lord, me. You know, okay, sure, weakness, teach me, to, teach me about my weakness. Teach me to boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ would rest on me. You know, forget my strength. I'm done toying around. I want the power of Christ. I want an internal, I want an internal life that changes everything. Right? And it's not until we come to the end of ourselves that we will seek the power of Christ. You know, as long as we've got it in hand, as long as we think we're plugging along just fine, as long as we can pull it off, then we don't really need that power. We will not seek it. God allows us to feel our weakness. I believe he brings David to this place so that he will seek and strengthen himself in the Lord. That he strips us of our power, of our delusions of power and grandeur. So that we will seek the power of Christ. There's no greater need for any of us than to discover and experience God's strength. I I believe it absolutely, and I believe that absolutely. There's no greater need for us to discover and to experience God's power, God's strength. Because I don't believe that you can do anything spiritually without it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need that strength to fight sin. Right? We need that strength to be righteous and holy. We need that, we need that strength that when we're not, that we, that we are driven to repentance and to faith and to throwing ourselves on his mercy. We need that strength to, to overcome evil with good. We need that strength to do anything in the spiritual life. You know, there are some who say that religion is a crutch for the weak. And you hear that out there? Religion is a crutch for the weak. Yeah, so what? Is that bad? Are you so strong? You got death licked? Are you righteous in the sight of your God? Be really careful. It's a crutch for the weak. That's exactly right. God is a strength and a help for those who know themselves to be weak and pursue His strength. What is wrong with that? What is wrong with religion being a crutch for the weak? It's only if you think you're strong that you think that's a bad thing. It's only if you think you've got it in hand, this life and the next, that you think that's a bad thing. Unless there's a real truth to it. If there is true power, if there is a God and there is strength and there is encouragement and there is power in Him, then what's wrong with leaning into it? What's wrong with borrowing from it? What's wrong with living on it and feeding on it? What's wrong with growing strong in that power? Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think he's saying the same thing. I came not to call the righteous, 
That is those who think they're righteous, those who think they're strong. Why? Because they're not going to come. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call those who know that they're weak. Why? Because they will come to me. It is only the weak who will come find a Savior, right? It is only sinners who will come find a Savior. It's only those who know themselves in this life to be that way. And so Jesus says his whole ministry is built around that. Those who think that religion is a crutch for the weak will never come to Jesus. And he said, I didn't come to call them. I came to call sinners. I came to call the weak. It's obvious by now that the power of God is not an impersonal force. It's not the force of Star Wars. It's not like electricity. Some people talk about plugging into God's power as if you, you just need to attach a power cord and plug it in. And, you know, and then we're, we're, you know, that this power is this thing, this commodity that you, could, that you, can, that you can obtain. God's strength, just like his grace, is a person. God gives himself to us. He strengthens himself in the Lord, his God, in communion with him, in fellowship with him, in relationship with him. There are Ephesians 3, 16 and 17 in your bulletin. It says, according to the riches of his glory, may he grant you to be strengthened with power in your spirit, in your inner being. Isn't that exactly what we need? The power of God in the inner being. That's the Christian life. That's the living of it. That's the loving of it. It's the accomplishing of it. Strengthened with power in the inner being, in the inner person, so that what? Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. His power comes to us in the person of Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. In fellowship with Him, walking with Him, knowing Him, loving Him. As we surrender ourselves by faith, give ourselves to fellowship with Him, we become strong. David reached out and took hold of a personal, living, powerful God. There's something real here. If there's not, we're to be pitied above all people. But there are dozens and hundreds and thousands of believers in every age and in every place testifying, testifying to the experience being strengthened in the inner being by the power of a living God with whom we have fellowship, whom we know and love, and we have no fear in the valley of the shadow of death because he is with us. And David knew how to find strength, and he reached out. David Tripp says again here at the very end in your bulletin, God had to remove all the things that were giving me false hope so that I could finally experience where true hope is found. David's life was stripped down to nothing. But he found that God was enough. He found encouragement. He found hope. He found strength. He found life. I bet he even found joy and worship. God knows it, it is only when we are weak that we really go looking for him. Finally, my brothers and my sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we desperately need this, and we confess that we are weak. We confess that we do not have it all together. We confess that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We confess that this is a broken down world, and we are broken down people. We are not as strong as we think we are. 
And it is only the delusion that we are strong that keeps us from seeking you. Father, I pray that you would do that work within us. That would teach us the fine art of strengthening ourselves in you, the Lord our God. That the power of Christ might indeed rest upon us day by day as we follow you and serve you and know you and love you and worship you as your people, people of the living God. These things we ask and pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.